Well, I hope you enjoyed the snow. I did. Of course, uh, it's pretty rare for it to snow in Auburn at all, as you know, those of you like myself who've lived here for many years. And uh, if if I'm remembering correctly, this is uh, the second year in a row that we have had snow. And um, now I grew up in the Northeast, and I've built literally hundreds of snowmen, a lot larger than this one. Uh, And it is also my tradition that I stand on my head and take pictures. I can almost chronicle my life with these pictures uh, that uh, I hope my mother is still kept, because I don't know where the the ones back starting in uh, grade school are. But uh, my daughter helped me build this one. Uh, One of her contributions is to name uh, the snowman. This one's Charlie. And, uh, of course, I'm getting, uh, you know, a little bit old to do this, uh, 50 years of age. It's taking a little more finesse to be able to stand on my head. So I'm beginning to uh, uh, work on how to uh, engineer a snowman who stands on his head, and I can stand straight up, and, and we'll see how that works. But, you know, you get the moment, you, see, you seize it. God at work. If you have the pink outlines, uh, if it helps you to fill that in as uh, we go through this, I'll try to cue you in at the right times. Otherwise, just please listen. The CEO went into his office, and he was praying to God. And while he was praying, he started thinking about time, and he asked God, God, how long is 10 million years to you? And God said, one second. The next day he was praying, and he said, God, well... How much is $10 million to you? And God said, one penny. Finally, the next day, the CEO worked up some courage and says, God, can, can I have one of your pennies? And God said, just wait a second. <laughs> well, we Americans are fascinated with money, aren't we? And there's more at work here than simply the desire to build some financial security. We're bent on affluence. We are, you know, captivated by wealth. I mean, infomercials crowd the television channels, especially during the weekends, featuring testimonies from wage earners who after a short correspondence course became millionaires by buying and selling real estate with no money down, and they only worked about 10 hours a week. Ever flown in a plane, you pick out those little complimentary magazines in the back pocket of the seat, and they are replete with video courses offered by financial and success gurus promising easy money. Millions flock to Atlantic City and Las Vegas hoping for the big score and to... uh, Add dump fuel and all of this malady. The advertising industry offers us everything from luxury cars to recreational and vacation options to clothing to homes to cigarettes to kitchen cabinets and top-of-the-line toilet paper. Hawked with the emphasis on opulence and uh, luxury and wealth. And in case some little used corner of your conscience is disturbed by this, the advertisers assure us that we need and deserve this opulence. Well, you might remember the 1979 movie entitled The Jerk. And this movie is kind of somewhat of a comedic, dark vision of the American dream, where Stephen Martin plays this kind of penniless simpleton 
who travels to the big city, he accidentally invents a hot-selling product for eyeglasses and becomes a millionaire. Unfortunately, the product is discovered to have adverse effects on the physical body, so the character played by Steve Martin ends up losing everything at the end. And while this rags to riches parodies the American dream, which is, by the way, all of us can become rich if we want to, it also points out how transitory money is and how fragile the marketplace really is. Well, today we encounter a text out of James that deals with the Christian in this kind of marketplace. Now, there are a lot of differences, technically, in the business world of James's day back in the first century and today. But when it comes to the acquisition and display of wealth, they're really not that far removed. You'd think that you were reading a commentary and you wouldn't be able to tell whether it's for the first century or the 21st century. Now, before I pick up in James 4, let me just ask you a simple question. When I use the phrase Christian businessman or Christian businesswoman, what image comes to your mind? Do you even have an image? Well, I want to start reading in chapter 4, verse 13, as we pick up in this series on James. And by the way, I think there's something for everyone here, if you're listening, but certainly James has, in his view, the businessmen who are at his church that that he's communicating with. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make some money. It happens every day. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it just vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, allow me to ask another question. How do James, how does James' words here actually influence the Christian in the marketplace? Or are these just nice stained glass words that stay here? Obviously, it's not James' intent to exclude the Christian from the marketplace. But it is a warning. Now, you'll notice that James begins with a phrase. He says, now listen. And that, by the way, that word structure is found only twice in all the New Testament, both of them found in the the book of James, and they convey a kind of of, uh, insistent, even brisk address. It's like the prophets in the Old Testament when they express the sense of disapproval and warning if you disregard it. So James is saying, listen up. Because, you see, on the top of your outlines, the marketplace often fosters the illusion of control, right? Now, we've already noticed that James talks a lot about wisdom and how there's two wisdoms that that are operating in the world in which we live. There's God's wisdom and there's the world's wisdom. And what James gives us here is a concrete example of how these two uh, uh, wisdoms compete in the marketplace. And the world's wisdom is propped up by the assumption of self 
sufficiency. That is, that I can just dismiss God. I don't need him out there. I can rely on my own shrewdness, my own intelligence, my own uh, expertise, and I can pioneer my own way out there. But James suggests that's a foolish trust because it's grounded in, in the presumption that I can dictate the future merely by my own will. You know, one of the most dangerous moments in life, if you think about it, occurs when a plan that we've engineered actually works. Well, having just experienced what is said to be the second worst financial collapse in American history, tell me, do you look at this text any differently now than you would have, say, two years ago? To put it another way, have you ever had a well-conceived financial plan disrupted by unforeseeable and uncontrollable circumstances? Now, here's true wisdom. Our lives are like vapor. You can't even guarantee tomorrow, no less a year from now. So you better consider God's will when you forecast your future, and you better be open and ready to make some adjustments along the way because you don't own the future. But if you choose, you can give it to the one who does. So, in the face of these struggles here in the marketplace, and by the way, anytime you make decisions in your own financial, personal life, let's consider that business too. James offers what is be considered good business sense. Top of there, there in your outlines, number one, don't fire God. Now you understand, don't you, that James is not against planning the future. I've actually heard people use this text this way. It's not his intent. You know, he's, he's not suggesting that you don't concern yourself with insurances and retirement accounts. That's not his point. You remember that it wasn't raining when Noah started building the ark. That is, it's not wrong to make preparations about future possibilities. Okay. In fact, James assumes that here, doesn't he? You know, go ahead, make your plans. But filter them through how fragile life is, how finite we are, and how sovereign God is. As we're told in Proverbs 16, wisdom, we can make our plans, but God determines our steps. Can you translate? You know, if you just ask a simple question, what's right in the middle of the word life? It is the word if. Point being, our lives will always have contingencies in the middle of them. Now, give me just a brief moment of theology. You know, we often take what we know for God about God for granted, translated. We never really take time to understand that there are implications to these things. And those implications are what we really build our faith in. So, the result, it leaves us kind of doubtful and wishy-washy and vulnerable out there. 
You see, the reason God is the only person who can arrange predetermined plans is because God is the only entirely independent being in the universe. That is, God is self-determining over any person, any part of his creation, and any eventuality. God transcends all of that. And so he alone can announce a plan and not have to face the word if. But you and me, we are dependent. We are absolutely reliant on many things, and many of those things we have utterly no control over. And that's why God alone deserves, and out of love, he desires to be the core of our personal security. And that's why, if God wills, should frequently sound out in the heart of those who are truly followers of Jesus. Now, of course, James isn't suggesting here that this becomes some sort of mindless cliche, like tying off our prayers with the phrase, in the name of Jesus, amen. Nor is he suggesting that we fall into some kind of superstitious posture of thinking that if we say, if God wills, it serves us like a mantra, some sort of paranormal formula for success. What James is talking about here is an attitude that acknowledges and trusts that God's will really is best for us. And that God really wants to, as we say and been hearing in prayers for decades going up to church, guide, guard, and direct our steps. Think of how often God's people throughout Old and New Testament times, recognized God's sovereignty and how they submitted their plans to him as though God had final approval and they meant it. For example, I think of Paul. Of course, his business was missionary work. He was sitting over in Troas one time, and he said the Lord had opened the door for him for for work. I mean, it was going great. And God changed his plans right in the middle of success and sent him over to Macedonia with that Macedonian call. Or in Acts 18, Paul's working out his itinerary plans of what he's going to do in the future, and he tells the church in Ephesus there, I will come back to you, quote unquote, if it is God's will. And by the way, they wasn't posturing, and it was God's will, and he did go back in Acts 19, and there was, um, among the most amazing uh, uh, aspects of his ministry were recorded in that moment in Acts 19. In fact, it was also bizarre, that's when they burnt all the witchcraft books and the mass of repentance and then the big riot. When you listen to God, wonderful and amazing things happen. The caution here, though, is that when we say, if it is God's will, we actually and genuinely are seeking a prayerful desire for God's agenda. And it's not simply some pious smokescreen. You with me? In the hope that by saying it, he won't interfere with what I really want to do. There's a difference between seeking God's blessings to validate our predetermined plans and asking God's leading of his spirit and making of those plans in the first place. Right? 
You see, that way, if you're connecting the dots, we're much more likely, rather than walking through life feeling entitled, we're really thankful when things work out as we planned, and we're more at peace when they don't. Now, can you step back and get the big picture point that James is trying to make? On your outlines, God doesn't desire to be an ornament clinging desperately to the surface of your life. Make your plans, but start with God, God's will, God's glory, and then your plans will really be blessed. Second, don't put off good. James tells us that it is radically presumptuous to think that I have tomorrow to do God's will. But the problem in James's day seems to be that the desire to make a profit became such a towering objective such a a high priority in their lives that it overshadowed everything else. You know, the question is, so where's God in all of this business? And these businessmen in that church with James were like deer caught in a headlight trying to answer it. I don't know. It kind of recalls the Jewish businessmen in the days of the prophet Amos. And you can look it up later, but it's in Amos 8. And basically he says, you guys trample the needy and you just shove aside the poor while you're sitting there anxiously waiting for the Sabbath to get over so you can go out and make more money. They followed the law and missed the whole point. And you'll remember that James has already been pointing that out all the way through this letter about how the Christians there had been neglecting the issues of social justice, haven't they? In other words, on your outlines, what discernible difference has it made in your business practice since you've come to know Jesus? If you don't perceive yourself in business, then what discernible difference has Jesus made in how you use your money? There's an eminent sociologist named Rodney Stark. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he made a really interesting remark. He says he wrote that Christianity grew in a very difficult environment because of its theology, which is a remarkable assertion given the attitude of sociologists toward religion. Well, Stark actually says this. Christians introduced into the world of hatred and cruelty a totally new concept of humanity. That is, you had a responsibility to be compassionate and caring to everyone. And that made a discernible difference in the first and second century when the deck was stacked against the Christian community. Are you hearing So, in the context here, I think James is likely commenting on Proverbs chapter 3. This is what is in the back of his mind. Don't withhold good from those who deserve it. 
when it's your, in your power to help them. If you can help your neighbor now, don't say, come back tomorrow and then I'll help you. You know, the term good business seems to have so little, so little to do today with goodness in the world. Although we are sometimes becoming a little more socially conscious, aren't we? You hear a lot more about that. But in God's wisdom, our lives are a mist. And so today is the day to live for God. We just can't afford to overlook opportunities that we should be doing right now. Remember, God's business is our business. And our business is God's business. Right? Number three. Don't brag about business. I meant to have the blank be brag. So you can underline both those words. He says you boast and brag. All such boasting, he says, is evil. Now that's a harsh, strong word. And I will tell you that James could have chosen a lot of other less harsh words that he had at his command, but he chose this one. The point being is that bragging is not a trivial matter to God. It's a big deal. And I think part of the reason for that is that worldly wisdom cannot tell the difference between self-worth and net worth. Connect them. And so in the marketplace, the desire to promote myself through my successes is my attempt to communicate to you my significance. And thus, I deserve preferential treatment. I deserve from you special treatment because of what I have accumulated. And Americans are obsessed with this, aren't we? It permeates everything that we do. And that's why we don't have television shows called Lifestyles of the Poor and the Unknown. Or Cribs of the Middle Class. Self-promotion will always lead to the illusion of self-sufficiency. And so James gives some very practical advice here. That's his intent. Have you had success in the marketplace? Praise God! But when people want to take you out to lunch and say, so how did you do it? On your outlines, be very slow to assume the role of expert. And by the way, if you think that just happens to people that are in the business world, it happens to people in ministry too. You always feel like you have to have answers. I appreciate the story of Albert Einstein. He was invited to speak at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, which is considered the number one liberal arts college in the nation. And hundreds of people from all over the country crowded into that auditorium to hear him speak. But when it came time for him to speak, he walked up to the lectern, he looked at the audience solemnly and said, ladies and gentlemen, I am very sorry, but I don't have anything to say. And then he just sat down. And everyone was, of course, sitting there somewhat baffled and a little bit shocked. Some were thinking about getting their money back. A few seconds later, Einstein got up, walked back to the podium, 
And this time he said, well, in case I do have something to say, I will come back and I'll say it. Well, about six months later, Einstein wired the president of Swarthmore College and says, now I have something to say. So they held another dinner and he made a speech. Be on your guard against the temptation of feeling that you should have an expert opinion about everything, even the areas where you do your work. Especially when you stop to think that really what you've achieved is really based more on grace than human effort. But that's where we break down. If God stays in here, that is my effort. There is no honor in being a successful fool. But James is smart. Go to the marketplace. Do your job. Anticipate the future. Include God and give him the glory if success has come. But don't brag about it. Because a Madoff moment is just around the corner. Now before I close. Remember the the fundamental problem that James is trying to address. And that is the whole illusion that I can dictate my own future. And some of you are still in doubt whether you could do that or not. So to James, the real question is this. How do I approach life when the outcome is really uncertain? And James's answer is trust in God's graciousness, not in human plans. And that's why James emphasizes here that true wisdom opens itself up. Listen, it opens itself up to pursuing God's agenda. And therefore, it always grants God permission to change the plans. Inflexibility does not honor God. On your outlines at the bottom, if God wills is an attitude that is eager to adjust to new and unanticipated things that God may really want to do. You see, if I am superficially pious in the church building while being independent of God out in the marketplace, I'm simply saying that God is active in here, but he's not active out there. If God is active in here, he is active out there. Right? You know, in most large cities, and I've been the recipient of this growing up, at account occasions, commuters, while going through rush hour traffic, can tune in to a, a local radio station to give them up-to-the-moment traffic reports. And it's pretty nice, especially if you're going into urban areas. And the report may point out that there's a wreck ahead and there's a, you know, a traffic jam up there, and they will suggest that you take an alternative route. You know, uh, don't stay in the path you're going. Go a different way. And you'll be glad you did. Now, how is it that the traffic report can have that kind of insight? Why, it's coming from a helicopter. 
It's coming from a higher point of view. God has a higher point of view. And no matter how well you've planned out your courses, go ahead and make your plans, and no matter how many times you've walked that path before, commuters of life, there will be times when God will speak to our lives and he's going to say, I want to send you in a different direction because I know what's ahead and you must trust my will for you. And I understand it's hard to translate that sometimes. I'm just saying if God is active in here, God is active out there. Now, it's good when God, you know, opens the doors and he blesses what we are already doing. But it's even better when we're willing to adjust our plan so that we can do what God is already doing. Because if God is active in here, he's active out there. Well, let me end with this. Alexander Wolcott had a very successful career in the uh, movie industry, wrote for the Atlantic magazine, and was very well known back in the early 1900s. And he was one of the most famous alumnus of Hamilton College there in New York City. And being very famous, he was asked to give a speech uh, at their uh, centennial celebration. And this is how he opened his speech. He says, I send my greetings today to all of my fellow alumni of Hamilton College scattered all over the world. Some of you are successes. Some of you are failures. Only God knows which or which. God's wisdom. If we can help you in any way this morning, why don't you feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.